I'm going to wrap up this topic of Clostridium difficile today, and I just hope I speak right because so far I've said some dumb things there. I was at the gym, and the lady's like, hey, have a good workout. I'm like, yep, you too. And I just feel like there are some days where no matter what you do, you are going to say the wrong thing. It's like if you get a wedding invitation and you can't make it, you don't want to write on it, maybe next time. But let's try this. So I'm going to start with some rather new stuff, and this comes out of the journal JAMA Surgery, so Journal of American Medical Association Surgery, and this is from December 2018. And this was a really interesting study that looked at peripheral eosinopenia, so low eosinophils on admission. And if you remember in the last few lectures about this topic, I was talking about how Clostridium difficile, the problem is it can range from very mild to very fulminant, where you're getting a colectomy and vasopressors and even death, and it's trying to determine who has a very mild disease or maybe not even a disease if they have a false positive test, meaning they are a carrier for Clostridium difficile, but they don't have Clostridium difficile infection. So we want to try to come up with prediction models for who is at risk for mortality, who is at risk for progressing to severe disease. And so the reason this study was done is because previous studies looking at mouse models have noticed that peripheral blood eosinophils are depleted in connection with binary toxin that's produced by certain strains of Clostridium difficile. And this binary toxin is thought to accelerate apoptosis of the eosinophils in the periphery, meaning kills off the eosinophils. In this study, which looked at over 2,000 humans, was very interesting because if you had an undetectable eosinophil count at emission for Clostridium difficile, it was a significant predictor of adverse outcomes. So those patients were not only at high risk for mortality, but also for vasopressors and getting a total colectomy, and needless to say, everybody that comes into a hospital with abdominal pain or an infection already has a CBC. So this is just something we can look at that's already been done. And yes, there does need to be validation of this study in future studies. And then we have to know, is there a way that we can restore eosinophils that will improve morbidity and mortality? meaning there may be a therapeutic role for eosinophils, but let's say there isn't any time in the near future. At a very minimum, it's good to have a diagnostic and predictive model of who may get really sick really quickly. Again, with the thought process being that toxin suppresses not only the protective colonic eosinophils, but also induces an apoptosis of blood eosinophils. One of the other things we were talking about in the past lectures is probiotics and how they should get much better as time goes on and we know which ones and which doses to use. And one of the thought processes is that there may be probiotics that can be developed that produce or recruit eosinophils or at least shut off some of the proteins that would cause destruction of eosinophils both in the gut and peripherally. For example, there is a protein that's called IL-25, and researchers have found 
that certain gut bacteria stimulate the production of IL-25. Eosinophils are recruited by this protein IL-25, so theoretically, the right probiotic could help with production of protective eosinophils. Pretty cool, if you ask me. You know, not everything's cool. If you're that guy who, when you're asked what's up, and you say, this guy, not cool. Producing IL-25 from probiotics, that would be pretty cool if it worked. Sticking with some of the more recent literature on Clostridium difficile, let's look at something out of the BMJ, British Medical Journal, from 2018. So the title of this was Risk of MRSA and Clostridium difficile in Patients with a Documented Penicillin Allergy. Needless to say, as most of you know, most of the patients with a documented penicillin allergy just have it documented, but it's not a real allergy. So teasing out who has a real penicillin allergy can be very difficult and is a whole other topic. The reason I bring it up is this study showed that increased use of beta-lactam alternative antibiotics accounted for a 55% increase in the risk of getting MRSA and a 35% increased risk for Clostridium difficile. So when we see that penicillin allergy and we try and avoid that class or beta-lactams altogether, sometimes we're using much more broad-spectrum antibiotics for quinolones. You get the idea. Sometimes when we use an alternative medicine to what we should have, we get an alternative disease. Sticking with literature that's at least relatively recent, this time from 2017 Journal of American Medical Association, there was a study looking at the effect of oral capsule versus colonoscopy-delivered fecal microbiota transplantation on recurrent Clostridium difficile infection. So this was a randomized clinical trial, and very important because the more recurrences you have, the more recurrences you're likely to have in the future. So if you have Clostridium difficile once, the chance of recurrence is about 10 to 30%, depending on the study. And when you get to the third time of having Clostridium difficile, your recurrence goes up to 60%. And as previously discussed, you can treat this different ways. So you can do an extended course of a different antibiotic, and you can do monoclonal antibodies, which I didn't discuss, but maybe we'll say something about briefly, and then fecal transplantation. Fecal transplantation has some of the best efficacy for changing the fecal microbiota and decreasing recurrence of Clostridium difficile. So this relatively small trial looked at fecal microbiota transplantation by either using the oral capsules or more of the traditional way it has been done, which is a gastroenterologist putting the new fecal microbiome in via a colonoscopy. So the capsules were found not to be inferior and of importance, which may be obvious, but nevertheless of importance, is that the participants who received the capsule overall rated their experience as not unpleasant. That's how they say it, not unpleasant at a much higher rate than those who had to get a colonoscopy. That's how much everybody hates colonoscopies. They would rather swallow poop than get a colonoscopy. Doctor, these pills taste like, yep, that's what they are. Just get them down. 
the 40 minutes of data entry and pre-authorization that I need to go through, I would rather take those pills than have to do that. I was mentioning the monoclonal antibodies. So there have been some studies, some have been a bust and some have been positive outcomes. So there's one monoclonal antibody called Zinplava, also known as Bezlotoxumab. And when given, this human monoclonal antibody is given at the time of receiving antibacterial drug treatment for Clostridium difficile, it decreases the risk of Clostridium difficile recurrence. This monoclonal antibody binds to Clostridium difficile toxin B and neutralizes its effects. It's not an antibiotic. So if you're going to use Zimplava, you have to use it with antibiotics, and it's a IV injection over about one hour. It can be given any time during the course of treatment of Clostridium difficile, and I have not seen it used. Um, if you have somebody that you're real high worry about for recurrence of Clostridium difficile, may be reasonable. I don't know the cost. I just have to assume with all monoclonal antibodies, it's not a few pennies. The data on this is relatively new, January 2017, New England Journal of Medicine. And while bezlotoxumab definitely decreased the risk of recurrent Clostridium difficile infection, it by no means knocked it down to zero or anywhere close to that. And that's why I think it hasn't gone to prime time at this point because of other options available, both in recurrence treatments with different antibiotic courses and fecal microbiota and things that are likely around the corner as well. Oh, and while I'm thinking about it, I know I'm jumping around, but I don't want to forget this. We were talking earlier in this episode about predictive models for who's going to get sick with Clostridium difficile. And reminds me now that I need to also mention that a higher leukocyte count or a higher creatinine level puts you at a higher 30-day mortality. Likewise, retrospective data shows that a high lactate level puts you at higher mortality. And sometimes while I skip what I think is obvious, it probably is worth mentioning that if you have a CT scan or even plain abdominal film imaging, that is concerning regarding thickened mucosa and colon and possible toxic megacolon, that likewise is a warning that you should be taking this very seriously. All right, and then I probably would be remiss not to mention testing for Clostridium difficile. And the question is, is there a single best laboratory test for C. diff? And the answer is definitely at this moment, no. I think there is going to be better and better testing. And I don't want to get too deep into this topic because I don't think it makes for a very exciting podcast. As a brief overview, most hospitals now have a multi-step algorithm to diagnosing Clostridium difficile infection. And there are five tests that are available for Clostridium difficile infection, stool culture testing. The first being cell culture neutralization assay. So this is culturing basically, which requires a culture facility. It's highly sensitive and specific, but takes way too long to come back to be practical. So most people are not using that. Then there's the toxin enzyme immunoassay for toxin A and B. It's fast, it's highly specific, but not as sensitive as other assays. Then there are the tests that are highly sensitive, but not specific. So glutamate, 
dehydrogenase enzyme immunoassay. It's fast, it's inexpensive, it's easy to perform, highly sensitive, but low specificity for toxin-producing Clostridium difficile-related disease. Likewise, nucleic acid amplification test. This is for C. diff toxin genes, highly sensitive, low specificity for predicting C. difficile-related disease. There's also toxigenic culture, which is highly sensitive, and it allows for strain typing in epidemics, but it requires anaerobic culture, so it takes two to five days. And again, I think you all realize by this third lecture on this that Clostridium difficile, the diagnosis of it is not solely based on the testing. It's putting the testing together with the clinical picture. And then the clinical picture will determine how you are going to treat this disease, which is not just one way. Just like friendship, which is a two-way street and not a one-way road. So if you are my friend, go ahead and leave a review on iTunes or whatever site you are listening to this on, and I will catch you on the next round. This is Dr. Gil Parat signing off.